Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. And that's part and parcel of what it is to have a sacrament, to be a sacrament. A sacrament is preaching. A sacrament is an expression of the gospel. When we take communion every week, you didn't know that you were preaching the gospel, but you are. When we, that's what the very Word of God says in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul tells us that when we partake of the bread and of the cup together as the body of Christ, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again, and that is the gospel. It is an act of preaching. And so every week, you engage in preaching. This is why taking of the cup and the bread is the center of what we do as the church, because it is a sacrament commanded by our Lord Jesus and is an act of preaching the gospel of Jesus for every single person who's here, regardless of who stands up front. And so each week, this is the climax of what we do. And this week, we get to, we get to do that twice, or we've gotten to do that twice, first in the sacrament of baptism and then in the sacrament of the cup and the bread. Um, and so now I, I want to discuss baptism a little bit because you might, I don't know what tradition you grew up in. I don't know how you've experienced it. In some corners of the church, baptism is really kind of downplayed. In some corners of the church, it's really played up to be the most important thing ever. Um, and there's a lot of confusion depending on what tradition you're from or how you grew up being baptized or baptizing people or whether you're new to the church and you're like what the heck is this whole baptism thing anyway what does this water have to do with following jesus now i was baptized twice um, and not as a baby like a lot of people who were baptized twice were first baptized as a baby and then later get re-baptized when they join a certain church not me I was baptized at like 10 because my dad told me I should. And so he was like, there's going to be a baptism service at the church, and you and your brother are going to be baptized, and you need to bring a change of clothes on this day, and we're going to baptize you. And I was like, okay. So we lined up at the front of the church with like 25 other people, and we were all baptized. And, uh, and that, was, that was what happened. I did it because I was told to. I did it in obedience, and that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and then later, when I was 16, I was working as the children's minister of our church, um, and I was studying ministry, and I was just about to enter college and really wanted to go to Bible college eventually. And so um, I really felt like my first act of baptism was, was just out of obligation. I, I didn't know anything. I didn't feel anything. It wasn't like my initiation and in my the tradition that I grew up in. It was when you decide to be a follower of Jesus, that's when you get baptized. And so um, for me, because that was so important, I asked to be baptized again. And so I asked one of the pastors of our church to baptize me. And they did, because honestly, the church I grew up in, they'd baptize you as many times as you wanted to be baptized. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, my understanding of baptism has changed since then. Um, but I also don't downplay the meaning that was there, like the, the importance of, of what I felt. I don't think that was wrong. Um, but my understanding of baptism has shifted and changed since then as I've understood more things about church history and the scriptures and what baptism is and what it means and the point of doing it. Um, 
And so that's really what we wanted to talk about today, is just to kind of talk about some of those misconceptions or ideas or uh, theologies of baptism, no matter where you come from, so that at least we can all in this room be on the same page about why we do it the way we do it here at Christ Community, um, how we're going to be doing it going forward, and what it all actually means. So I'm going to ask Mindy to come and share her story uh, briefly of baptism, uh, what it meant to her. Okay, there we go. Well, okay, um, baptism. Um, so, I don't know, some of you may have heard part of my testimony I shared a few months ago when I preached here for the first time. I grew up in a family that did not practice or follow faith. Um, my father was Jewish and my mom was Protestant. She came from a Protestant background, but they both kind of fell away from faith um, once they became adults. And so, and then, if, you know, when they divorced when I was very young, of course, then there, um, there really wasn't any kind of understanding or practice, especially around baptism. So that was very, very foreign for me. Um, when I became a follower at the age of 19, my conversion experience was, was pretty um, extreme, I guess you could say, um, kind of unusual uh, compared to other folks that I knew after I started to go to Bible college and started to learn about other people's stories and, and hear about um, other people's following of Christ. And so... Um, but when I became a believer, for me, the, the, the decision was very distinct and very intentional. Um, I, uh, it literally was like the next day when I went outside and I looked at the trees and the sky. It, I saw everything in a completely different light. And so my experience of going from living my life to um, myself and my desires and my needs to completely shifting to, wow, I want to follow God, I want to follow Jesus, and whatever that means for my life, um, that's what I want. And so I went after it uh, wholeheartedly. Um, I had mentioned that I had gotten connected to a church uh, pretty quickly and within that church, there was a small group Bible study that I attended. And I mean, you know, like any typical new believer, you're just like a sponge. And so I'm soaking everything up. And I remember we, you know, we were talking about baptism and I just, I had no idea what that was. But I remember reading um, about different, you know, stories and how, you know, with with Jesus and, and in, in the Gospels, and, and they had talked about they were going to do a baptism, and I mean, instantly I was like, I want to be baptized. Um, my understanding was that it was a representation of the decision and choice that you made as a follower of Christ, and that when you go into the water, uh, when you step into the water, you, 
that is your old life, and then when you come out of the water, that's a representation of the new life. And that is exactly what I had experienced um, in my personal life. And so for me, this was a really, really big deal. I wanted to show everybody where I stood with my faith, and that included my family who, um, you know, I'm sure my dad probably thought I was super crazy. <laughs> and some of my friends at the time in my life didn't know what was happening to Mindy. Uh, she's lost her mind. <laughs> she's, I don't get this whole water, you know, whatever. But I made it a big deal. I invited, I invited folks I knew, and um, it, it was very special for me. Um, we had, I think in the church, there was like a blow-up pool or something. And, um, you know, you, literally you, you step in it, and the pastor stepped in it with me. And we went through a whole, you know, kind of questions. Um, do you believe, do you believe, kind of what we do here? And he, um, you know, I knelt down in the water in the pool and he literally dunked my entire body back and I came up and it was pretty powerful for me. Um, it was very meaningful. And so after that then, of course, um, we had a celebration and um, I, even think, I even think I got a cake maybe. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was very important for me. And so, um, that, that's my experience, and it's interesting um, coming here. You know, since then, I've been involved in non-denominational churches. And so the water baptism for babies is very new. Um, it's not something I've ever experienced or understand, and so I look forward to hearing and learning more about that and what that means. Um, but yeah, that's my, that was my experience. Thank you. Yes. Was, <laughs> it's good to hear from someone who comes from a non-faith background what the experience was. Because those of us who grew up in the church, you grew up in one tradition or another. And so it was just kind of, maybe for you it was just assumed that you would be baptized one day. Or maybe it was you were baptized as an infant and then it, it might have been important to you. Or maybe it was something you didn't ever really even think about. Um, and so, in either case, whether you grew up in a tradition that dunked adults or dunked people or sprinkled babies, um, or you grew up in, the, in a non-faith tradition and came to it and was ba were baptized uh, later in life, um, it's something that I think we, 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 we do a disservice to the church when we don't keep baptism at the forefront, um, because the New Testament does. And so, um, so that's where we wanted to go today. So thank you, Mindy. Appreciate your story. Um, and yeah, you can, you can either join me in answering questions or you can have I'm a seat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this only works if you actually ask questions, okay? Um, so there are um, two, uh, two things here. One, you can just raise your hand and ask a question, or if you want to be more anonymous and subtle, you can text them to my phone, um, and I will respond. And so I've already gotten one, um, which is good because this is where we needed to start anyway. We just baptized a baby. How many of you grew up in a tradition that baptized babies? How many of you grew up in a tradition where you were dunked later? And that was me, okay. All right, so we're like 50-50 in here. That's amazing. Um, 
If you grew up in a tradition that baptized babies, you had something in your church called confirmation that came around the age of 12 or 13, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later, uh, but generally around that time. If you grew up in a tradition that dunked people, you were probably dunked between 10 and 13 or so, probably. Generally, that's where we go. So the important thing here is, regardless of which tradition you were in, both traditions recognize that that age range of like that 10 to 13-ish is the point at which people begin to own their own faith. And so if you were dunked, then you were dunked because you were at the place where you could articulate your own Christian faith. If you were confirmed and you went through confirmation, you did that as a confirmation of the baptism you received as an infant. And so in either case, both traditions recognize that there comes this point in a person's life where they begin to own their faith for themselves and they are now their own follower of Jesus. They're no longer kind of covered under their family or under the umbrella of the church necessarily, but they are owning it for themselves. So that's the important thing. I want to highlight the, the commonalities we have more than the differences. Um, so, so there's that first, which is we all recognize that there's a point in life where you own your own faith. In infant baptism circles, we call that point confirmation. In Baptist circles or practice, uh, traditions that dunk later in life, um, I'm just, I like the word dunk. I don't know. I was dunked twice. I feel like I, I love it. Um, there's a lot of fun around dunking. Um, so, so we all recognize that there's that point where you own your own faith. Um, and so what, what, what I've been asked here, though, is what's the background on how and when infant baptism started? Uh, infant baptism is almost as old as the church itself, or is as old as the church itself, depending on who you ask. Right? Um, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul makes a link between uh, baptism and circumcision. Do you know what circumcision is? We're going to get real graphic in just a second, all right? <laughs> if you've had a baby boy, you know what it is. If you are, yeah, yeah. Um, so circumcision is the practice of cutting off the foreskin from the penis of a male. Um, and it was practiced... In the uh, Jewish world, it, was, it's it is practiced among uh, observant Jewish people as a sign of the covenant of belonging to Yahweh, a sign of belonging to the covenant of uh, God. And every male born to a Jewish family must be circumcised on the eighth day after they're born as a sign of the covenant promise that God has made. Now, there, there, here's one of the important things. This sign is made before the kid can do anything, right? The sign is made before the kid has any agency of their own to say, yes, I'm devoted to Yahweh or to begin obeying the laws of the land. So the covenant sign is an act of grace given to these kids before they can ever obey. It's not in response to their faith or their obedience or anything. It's just the fact that they belong to a Jewish family that is in the covenant people of God. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul draws a link between the practice of circumcision under the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant. Here's what he says. Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. Therefore, 
Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and firm in your faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been filled with Him who is the head over every ruler and authority. In Him you also were circumcised, not, however, with a circumcision performed by human hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body, that is, through the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, you also have been raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He nevertheless made you alive with Him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Disarming the rulers and authorities, He has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now there's a lot of talk in there of circumcision. And what Paul is saying here is that the real circumcision is not the circumcision that happens in a male genitalia, but the real circumcision happens in the heart. It's the cutting away of the sin nature. It's the cutting away of the part of us that really longs for sin and then makes us holy before God. So, so that's what real circumcision is. And that's where he makes the link to baptism. He says, having been baptized and having, your, uh, having been baptized and having your body buried with Jesus in baptism, now you've been raised to life. And so those of us who practice infant baptism do so largely on the basis of this verse, of this passage, where there's a distinct connection between the circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant. Uh, and because we see circumcision as an act of grace for the people of God before Jesus, baptism is the act of grace that seals us as God's covenant people in the new covenant. That's why we practice infant baptism. It's been practiced, the earliest known practice was within a couple hundred years of the church's beginning. Um, those of, some people will look to the book of Acts and see where entire households are baptized, and they'll say, well, there must have been children in that household. And so if a household is being baptized in the ancient world, some people will read into that, well, there must have been children there, and so they find justification. Now let me make this abundantly clear. There is nowhere in the New Testament that explicitly condones or tells us to baptize babies or children who can't profess their faith. And so on the other end, for the Baptist folks, for folks who practice adult baptism, what we call credo-baptism, that is, baptizing only people who can profess their own faith. For those who practice credo-baptism, that's their argument, is nowhere in the Bible do we see baptism being prescribed for children. You have to make the connection to circumcision. That's the only way. Right? And so that's where we differ. Um, but infant baptism has been practiced since a couple hundred years past the founding of the church, maybe all the way to the beginning of the church, and has been practiced in most traditions since then. We live in a country where 
the, those who practice infant baptism are in the minority, but worldwide, those who practice infant baptism have been in the minority and the majority for almost 2,000 years. And so we have such a Baptist influence in the United States that infant baptism seems weird to a good portion of Protestant Americans, but in fact, it's been the practice of the majority of Christians for the majority of history. Um, Credo baptism came about in the 1500s, 1523 and 24 actually, is when the Anabaptists come up. And the Anabaptists just means re-baptizers. It's a group of people who said, we're going to follow only the scripture, not church tradition, and we don't see anything in scripture that says we should be baptizing babies. So we're only going to baptize people who profess faith in Jesus. And they got the name Anabaptists or rebaptizers by their opponents. It was actually a, a derogatory word um, that was used for them. <clears throat> and so credo baptism or baptizing those who profess faith has really only been a practice in the church consistently since about 1530 um, and the rise of the Anabaptists. And even then there was conflict there. Um, but the important thing to know is that both traditions have biblical foundations and both traditions agree on the importance of baptism. Right. So there's your history lesson for today. Uh, if you want to read more about that, look up a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, Z-W-I-N-G-L-I. -I. Look up Zwingli and the Anabaptists. It's not a pretty story, so just warning you. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible story. Um, Okay, so here's a follow-up question to that. If a baby of a believing family dies before baptism, are they saved and go to heaven? There's a, there's a, oof, man. Um, that's a hard question, right? So there are two possible answers to this. One is yes, they do, because they are part of the covenant community of God. Um, and because they've been baptized into the covenant community, they are one with the saints, and therefore they are saved as much as anybody else in the church um, up until their confirmation when they own it for themselves and then they carry on their faith. Another answer, and the answer that I usually give when I'm talking to anybody about the death of young people, um, and this is, this is I think the most consistently biblical answer I can give, is God is good, God is just, and I trust him. And so whenever I'm asked personally about the fate of any individual person, whether they're in heaven or hell, my answer is God is good, God is just, and I trust him. And that's for me enough. Maybe it isn't enough for you. Um, it, for many people in the church, that hasn't been enough. Um, but I think we've tried to give too many firm answers where the Bible doesn't actually give firm answers. And a lot of our mystery questions in the church could be answered simply with God is good, God is just, and we trust him. Um, and so that's how I answer with the fate of anybody, baby or adult. Um, there, are, there have been times where I will affirm, yes, I absolutely believe this person is with Jesus because I knew them and I knew their faith. Um, but most of the time my answer is God is good, God is just, and we trust him um, above all. Um, I was asked, do we bless the baptismal water? Um, the answer is no. 
we don't. So if you're in a Catholic tradition or, or even some really high church traditions, that is churches with um, very set liturgies and set practices and things, um, they will bless the baptismal water. Um, and that blessing essentially makes the water holy and sacred. And that's the idea behind blessing the baptismal water. Um, we do not do that because honestly, we don't think there's anything holy about the water itself. It is the Holy Spirit working through the act of baptism that makes it holy, not the element itself. It's the same reason that we don't consecrate the bread and the cup. If, you've, if you grew up in a Catholic tradition, you know that the wine is consecrated before you can partake of it. That makes it holy. And in the Catholic tradition, that makes it the literal blood of Jesus. And so you can't waste any of it. The priest has to drink the rest of the wine after the service um, because it is, it is a sacrilege to allow it to go to waste. Same thing with the bread. Uh, the wafers that are consecrated must be eaten. They cannot go to waste because they themselves are holy. And in that tradition, they have been transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. We don't think there's anything holy about the particular elements themselves. We think what is holy is what God is doing through those elements, through the water and through the act and through taking these things into ourselves. And so that's why we don't consecrate these um, and, and we don't see any problem with um, t wasting them if there's extra left. Um, so I can't imagine anybody wanting to eat some of the wafers that we've used in the past. Um, so. Uh, if we ever have really tasty communion bread, you're welcome to take it and, and eat the consecrated bread. Um, so that's why we don't consecrate it. Um, is baptism required for salvation? Now, this is a big one, right? This is a really tricky question because the short answer is no. It is not required for salvation. We are saved through the work of Christ by grace through faith. We have faith in Jesus. It is his blood that washes our sin. It is his resurrection that promises us new life and gives us new life. It is the Holy Spirit that cleanses us of sin and makes us followers of Jesus. So in that sense, no, it is not. However, baptism is mentioned 95 times in the New Testament. And in the book of Acts, every single time, every single instance, of someone putting faith in Jesus, they are immediately baptized. Immediately. There's a story of the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip the Apostle being kind of transported and uh, the, he's explaining the book of Isaiah to this eunuch and how it points to Jesus. And immediately he baptizes him. In fact, the eunuch says, hey, Philip, there's a puddle. Can you baptize me right now? And Philip says, yes. And then immediately Philip's like whooshed away by the Holy Spirit, right? He baptized him, he's done the family of Cornelius. This one's a crazy story. In Acts chapter 10, um, Cornelius is this Gentile. He's a non-Jewish person, and he has a dream that the apostle Peter is going to come to him. And so Peter comes to Cornelius, and Cornelius falls down on his feet to worship Peter. Peter's like, no, 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 don't worship me. And he tells him about Jesus. And immediately, all of Cornelius's family was baptized. Because in that culture, in that time and place, when the head of household decided we're going to follow a new faith, the entire household went with them. There was no like individual choice here, right? Head of household says we're following Jesus, everybody else gets on board. And that's 
wife, children, cousins. That's anybody he has authority over. And they all begin to follow Jesus. So the New Testament doesn't know anything of a follower of Jesus who's not been baptized. Nothing. And so it is not required for salvation, um, but it is the highest priority after someone places faith in Jesus. The highest priority. Um, and so I had, um, I was in a church one time, and one of the leaders of the church confessed to me that he had not been baptized. He was, a, he was a, a, like an ordained leader of the church, confessed that he had not been baptized. He was waiting for his children to put faith in Jesus so that he could be baptized with them. And I nearly dragged him to the kitchen sink right then and was like, bro, this is like, this is a big deal, a big deal. Um, the other thing that happens in the New Testament, and this is, this is really where we got to work out some theology, is in the book of Acts, when someone is baptized, that's when they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They are baptized, and then almost always in the book of Acts, they receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and then oftentimes they begin doing some really weird stuff. Now, in a Reformed church, we don't like to talk about that, we don't like to hear about that, but it's the fact of the testimony of the New Testament is when in Acts someone is um, baptized, they almost immediately receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and then they begin to do weird things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I, I believe that we receive the Holy Spirit the moment that we confess Jesus and we become a follower of Jesus, um, and yet there is a spiritual empowerment that is connected to baptism that we really got to figure out and work out. Like, what do we think? What do we believe about this? Um, so, Baptism is not required for salvation. Baptism is not the point at which the Holy Spirit comes into you, but it is the absolute highest priority the moment someone professes faith in Jesus. Um, the one caveat to that is that in the early church, they would have classes leading up to baptism, primarily because they lived in an environment where people were coming from very pagan backgrounds and didn't understand what it was to follow Jesus and because they lived in a climate of persecution, and they wanted to make sure that before someone was baptized, that they really knew what the cost would be of following Jesus before they made the commitment to be baptized. Because in the early church, the profession of the mouth alone didn't really mean much until you were baptized. That was your inauguration into a life of following Jesus. And they would connect this to Jesus' own baptism, which you can read about in Matthew chapter 3. Um, you can read about it in all the Gospels, actually, mention the baptism of Jesus by John the baptizer. Um, and so the way that the earliest followers of Jesus saw his ministry was Jesus' ministry was inaugurated at his baptism. That's when Jesus' ministry actually began, when he was baptized. And they believed that the life of following Jesus really began at the moment of baptism, not necessarily the moment of confession. Does that make sense? Right, so it's an inauguration. Um, let's see if I got any more questions here. Um, oh man, yeah, so here's a good one. Um, <laughs> uh, th th these are two questions in one. I got one that asks, um, what if someone was baptized as a baby and then wants to experience it later? Um, and then the other question, 
was, um, why do some people get baptized every time they recommit to their faith, uh, and is that necessary? And so those, those two things really go together. Um, nothing magic happens at baptism. There's, there's no magical thing that happens. And yet, there is something spiritual and mysterious that happens at baptism. Um, and again, in a Reformed world, we like answers to every single question. And in an American educated world, we like answers to every single question. We have a hard time embracing mystery. But the Holy Spirit is incredibly mysterious. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 3. He says, you know where the wind is blowing, but you don't know where the Spirit is. <laughs> Jesus makes it clear the Holy Spirit is mysterious, and the way that God works is mysterious. And if we could fully understand God, he wouldn't be God. He'd be something less than us. Because anything our minds can fully comprehend is less than our intellectual capacity. It's less than we are. And so if we could fully explain everything about God and the Holy Spirit, that would be an idol. That would be a God we made up. And so while nothing magic happens at baptism, something spiritual does occur. Right? A transfer takes place. Um, whether that happens as a baby or as a professing adult or a professing person. Um, and so some people choose every time they recommit their faith to be baptized. I, I actually counsel against that. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I was away from the church for a long time, I've come back, and now I really want to be rebaptized, I'm like, man, if, there's just no, nothing happens. Like, you don't have to do it. It's not necessary. However, if you have been 20 years away from the faith and you feel like as an expression of your newfound new life in Christ, this is a step you need to take, and you are convicted of that, let's do it. Like, let's baptize you. Just understand that nothing magic happens then. Um, this is a recommitment. This is a, a renewal of your faith. Um, and maybe it's a sign that you're actually following Jesus this time, and that previously it was, it was kind of an act of, of obligation that you felt like you had to take. Um, and so there's no sense in which, like, Baptism didn't take the first time, so we need to do it again. Like, that just, that's not the way it works, okay? Um, so nothing happens if you're rebaptized. Nothing magic happens. However, you may feel like, someone may feel like, man, I really, this, I really need to do this. And one, of, one interesting place to go for, the, for this um, is, again, to the book of Acts. There's this guy named Apollos. In Acts chapter 18 to 19, there's this guy named Apollos, and he is a, uh, he's a follower of Jesus. He's been taught the gospel of Jesus. But we're told that Apollos was baptized with the baptism of John the baptizer. Now, there's a big question in the early church. Is the baptism of John the baptizer the same as being baptized into Jesus? And uniformly, the answer is no. John the baptizer comes on the scene, and he's pre preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's the forerunner to Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus, and he's baptizing people, which is crazy because he's baptizing Jews, and Jews didn't think they needed to be baptized. It's Gentiles who are becoming Jews that need to be baptized. They have to be cleansed. I was born a Jew, therefore I'm clean. I don't need to be baptized. John the Baptist comes along and is like, no, no, no. I don't care how you were born. I don't care what your bloodline is. Like, the kingdom of God is coming. You need to repent and then be cleansed. And so he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. 
But later we find that people who were baptized by John need to be baptized again in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into Christ. That happens in Acts chapter 18 with Apollos, who was teaching and leading in the church. And, and we, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, even says, although Apollos only knew the baptism of John. Like it's a lesser thing. Like he, he was only John baptized. He wasn't Jesus baptized. So we have to re-baptize Apollos. And then there are all these other followers of Jesus who had been baptized into John's baptism. They had repented under the preaching of John the baptizer. And then they go, the apostle Peter comes to them, preaches the gospel, and then baptizes them again into Christ. And so there's this recognition in the Bible that the baptism of John is not the same as the baptism into Jesus. And so that is one biblical case for re-baptizing people. Those who have been baptized into a tradition that is not faithful to Christ. And so, for instance, I would counsel against rebaptism for people who come from a Catholic background, or from people who grew up in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, or from people who came from a Pentecostal tradition where they were baptized at 12, but they want to be rebaptized because they really feel it now. Like, I would, I would counsel against it, although, like I said before, if you really feel like you need this is a step of obedience you need to take, we'll do it gladly. Um, but people who were baptized into heretical traditions, into non-Orthodox traditions, people who were baptized in the Mormon church, people who were baptized Jehovah's Witnesses, people who were baptized in traditions who don't recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh, they need to be rebaptized. Just as those who were baptized by John had to be baptized into Christ, so those who have been baptized into churches and religious traditions that are not faithful to Jesus need to be rebaptized into Christ. Or not even re baptized for the first time into Christ. Does that make sense? Judy doesn't look like it makes sense. No. 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 That is not how he baptized Jesus. I know, right? The, that baptismal formula of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that comes from Matthew chapter 28, 19 to 20, where Jesus himself says, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and so uh, that's where that comes from. And then the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Jesus reiterates the same thing before he leaves. And so that formula is what we consider the legitimate formula for baptism, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so that comes later from John. Jesus is baptized by John, and we see the Holy Spirit descend, and we see God speak. And so you have all three of them engaged in Jesus' baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of them are working in Jesus' baptism. But it's not until later, after Jesus' resurrection, that the Holy Spirit becomes available to all people individually. Prior to that, the Holy Spirit was someone who indwelled the people of God collectively and individuals for specific purposes at specific times, but it's only after Jesus' resurrection that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells all of God's people individually for all time. So that formula can't be used until after the Holy Spirit descends. Some big theology here. 
some deep stuff. Um, any other questions about baptism? Yeah, Harry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, so that's actually one of the things that Paul is doing in Colossians, is he is universalizing the faith. He's broadening it out be, beyond men. Um, and so in Galatians and Colossians both, Paul is very egalitarian. He's very like, there, this is where he says, there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female within the faith of Christ, right? And so in Colossians where he's connecting circumcision to baptism, he's actually making it far broader than circumcision was, where circumcision could only apply to men and to males. Um, baptism applies to both male and female, and the circumcision of the heart applies to both male and female. And so this is the expansion of the kingdom and the great grace of God that empowers all people as opposed to focusing on men. Okay. Yeah, Walter. Yes. Um, and that's where in that exact passage, there's no distinction made between water baptism and the baptism of the Spirit because after Peter is done preaching, 3,000 people profess faith in Jesus and they're all baptized immediately. Like that's, if that's what they do first thing. And so, um, yes, receiving the, power, receiving the Holy Spirit is what regenerates us. It, what, it's what takes us from death to life. The power of the Holy Spirit living within us is what connects us eternally to Jesus and to the Father. And there is no doubt that that is absolutely um, the most essential thing, which is why we can be saved without being baptized. But again, according to the New Testament, um, water baptism is like the most important thing that follows our salvation. Um, on that very day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, 3,000 people say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and they baptize all of them right then and there. Um, and that's, that's the practice consistently through the early years of the church. Someone professes faith in Jesus, and then they find some water, and they baptize them, um, because that is the sign and seal of joining the covenant community of God. I think we get to downplay baptism in our world because it's so comfortable to be a Christian, to call yourself a Christian. In an ancient world where the act of baptism was like treason against Rome, like in the ancient world where the act of baptism marked you out and made you a target of persecution, it was a big deal. It's only because of the comfort in which we live that we can let people slide without being baptized because there's no, there's no like change of, of community status when we follow Jesus for us. You know, like the world doesn't all of a sudden like mark you out as a target. Um, and so that's, I think it's our comfort that leads us to downplay the importance of baptism uh, in our world. Yeah, Chloe. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. So baptism is an external expression of an inward reality. Um, it is a, it's an external ex expression of what's happening inside. And that's where the Apostle Paul can talk in Colossians and Galatians about when you were baptized, you were clothed with Christ. Um, and so in baptism, we are identifying with the death of Jesus 
and the resurrection of Jesus. And so Baptists and people who like to dunk will really emphasize this because they say, how can you really make sprinkling or pouring into this expression of like dying and rising again? Like when you actually fully are immersed, you're without air for a moment. You like really identify with Jesus in that. And I, I resonate with that. I watch my friends like baptism services and I'm like, man, that is awesome. Like that's a party I want to be a part of um, because I really do resonate with that too. Like the identification of dying with Jesus and then rising out of the water again as a new creation, as someone new in Christ is such a beautiful expression of what's really happening internally. And the Holy Spirit is really at work in that, I think, in ways that that we can't fully comprehend. So, um, it's getting late, and so I'm not going to hold you any longer. We're not going to sing a final song, okay? I got a couple more questions coming in here, but we will... um, uh, There's one more I want to answer real quick. Um, um, Do you have to be baptized to take Holy Communion? That depends on the tradition that you're talking about. Um, I think yes. Um, I think you, you should be. Um, and that's, I think that primarily because of the strong connection between following Jesus and being baptized that we see in the New Testament. Because there's such a powerful connection between those two things in the New Testament. They don't consider you a follower of Jesus until you've been baptized. Um, and so I would argue, yes. And in the covenant, in the Reformed churches, that's what we say too you need to have been baptized in order to partake of communion. In fact, in our traditions where we baptize infants, we don't let children generally take communion until they've been confirmed, until they own their baptism for themselves. Um, in other traditions, they'll allow children to take, partake of communion. I don't, care, I don't mind if our children take communion, um, I think especially if they've been baptized as children and they're under the covenant of their parents and under the covenant of the community. Um, that's where I break with some of our traditions a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think the New Testament doesn't really see you as a full follower of Jesus until you've been baptized. Um, and so communion should be for those who have been baptized into Christ, uh, just according to Acts. So um, there were a couple more questions, but I will let them go. Um, if you have not been baptized or you are feeling the need. You're feeling this urge from the Holy Spirit to take that step of obedience and to be baptized. I would love to talk with you. If you have children who have not been baptized, I would love to talk with you. Um, the very last thing about this is um, we are going to vote, in, and this is a technical thing for our church, but I, I want to share this with you. In September, we're going to take a congregational vote on whether we're going to remain with our denomination or go to another one. Um, the denomination that's been identified for us to pursue and go to is the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, and uh, barring any major complications, I think that vote is going to go that way, and we're, we're, we'll be making that transition. In the Covenant Church, um, every pastor and church must practice both infant baptism and believer's baptism um, because they don't want this to be a divisive issue for the church. And so we have to affirm and we, as pastors, we have to make the commitment not to put down either form, but to recognize that throughout the history of the church, both forms of baptism have been upheld, and there are good biblical arguments for both. And so we will practice both. 
And so if we as a church join that denomination, it will become our practice to do both believer's baptism and infant baptism according to the convictions of the families, according to the convictions of, of leaders. Now, I'll still be able to counsel people into whatever form is best um, or what we see as most biblical, but, but we will as a church now have to affirm that both modes of baptism, both forms of baptism are equally valid and that we will practice both should we make that move. And so I just wanted to share with you that would be our practice going forward. Um, and then one other thing, because I think baptism is something that we don't talk about a ton, but we really should. We should really be remembering our baptism. In our baptism, we make vows, we make promises to Jesus, we make promises to our community and church. And so one practice that I love from higher churches is that when you enter, there's a, there's a baptismal font. When you walk into a Catholic church, or when you walk into an Episcopal church, uh, or some Methodist churches, there's a baptismal font when you enter. And it's practice then in the Baptist church, and Catholic church is practice to dip your finger and then cross yourself. In others, it's a practice just to dip your finger in the water. And that's not some crazy weird ritual. It's just a reminder of the promises you made in baptism when you were baptized or the promises your family made when you were baptized as an infant and then you made again when you were confirmed. And so in the future, before the pandemic, we had this bowl set out. We had the font set out by the door. Um, but then because of pandemic stuff, we took it away. It's going to be back there. So when you enter in the future, it's not a requirement. It's not like some necessary thing. But if you want, as you enter, just dip your finger in the baptismal water and remind yourself of the commitment you've made to Christ and that God has made to you through baptism. It is a reminder of the grace of God at work in all of us. And it is a reminder that we didn't deserve this water. We didn't earn this water. We could never have gone to death ourselves for our own sins. But that Jesus died and was risen again to save us from our sin and to unite us to God. And that's what we celebrate in baptism. And so in the future, this is going to be there and as you come in, if, if, if you feel like, like it, just dip your finger in and just remind yourself, I've been baptized into Christ and clothed with him by his grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for this time to explore what it means to be baptized. Thank you for Jax. Thank you for Jesse and Brittany and their family and their commitment to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for these people who are gathered here, who are committed to following you, Jesus, into every corner of the world. Thank you for our baptismal promises. Thank you for the grace that allows us to die and rise again with you, Jesus. Thank you for your blood shed on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for, Lord, your ongoing reign at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, be king of our lives, be king of this church, be king of our world. And until, Lord, you come again, we strive to work for your kingdom purposes in our lives and in our community. And it is in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.